Uh, If you were with us last week, if you're not a new attender and you were with us last week, you know that we started off last week talking about the Church of Pergamum by defining the word compromise. Uh, It seemed like an appropriate way to continue that trend. I promise I spent more time in Scripture than in the dictionary this week, uh, but there's another dictionary definition I have for you this morning. Dictionary.com, once again, defines tolerate as to allow the existence, presence, practice, or act of without prohibition or hindrance. To tolerate, to allow the existence, presence, practice, or act of without prohibition or hindrance. Like compromise, this word can be good and bad, can it not? To be tolerant is a good thing. It's a good thing to tolerate your brothers and sisters in Christ, to put up with their foibles and their issues and their challenges. But it can also be a bad thing to be tolerant if we're tolerant of the wrong things. Our culture would have us believe that tolerance might be what we call the chief virtue. Tolerance is the apex of love. To truly love someone is to tolerate everything about them and everything they do. But is that true? Is that what the Bible teaches? Is absolute tolerance really loving? This week we're going to be taking a look at the church at Tyra or Thyatira, and in many ways, this is a church that if you had ignored the lesson to the church at Pergamum, you would find yourselves with the church at Thyatira. And we'll be asking ourselves the question, is absolute tolerance really loving? Let's pray, and then we'll get into this passage. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, we thank you for the joy it is to have the freedom to sing praises to you openly, to gather openly, uh, the joy it is to celebrate the gift we have through, the son, through your Son and the work of, or His work of salvation in our lives. Uh, Lord, I do pray that for us, Christ would be enough. Lord, that as we study your Word this, together this morning, you would encourage us, you would challenge us, uh, you would use your Word in our lives to mold us into the image of Christ. Father, expand our vision and understanding of who you are through your word. Help us to not say more than what the text says this morning, but help me to not say less than what the text says as well. Give us courage and boldness as we approach this challenging passage. In Christ's name, amen. Well, again, just want to thank Mario for his willingness to read. Hopefully, you've enjoyed getting to hear from others as much as I have. Uh, Let me bring you up to speed in case you're visiting with us this morning. We've been taking eight weeks this summer, and we've been looking at the seven churches in Revelation. Seven letters that Christ as the bridegroom sends to his church, the bride. We've looked at a number of different churches, all of these love letters from Christ to his church. A few weeks ago, we talked about the church in Ephesus. Christ's message to this church that had become complacent in their love was love. You have forsaken your first love, return. Then two weeks ago, we talked about the church at Smyrna, and Christ's message to this church that was under incredible persecution was, don't fear. Don't fear. Last week, we moved to our third church, the church at Pergamum, and Christ said to that church, don't compromise. Quit compromising to the culture around you. In the same theme, we move on to our fourth church, Thyatira, together this morning. Hopefully you're familiar with the outline, but just in case you aren't at this point, let me run you back through it. 
we'll see the letters address, the letters aim, and the letters assurance. The letters address in verse 18, who it's from and who it's to. The letters aim in verses 19 through 23, what is the message that Christ is trying to, com- trying to convey to his church? And then lastly, the letters assurance in, in 24 through 29. And it's important to note that this is the longest assurance we see in any of the letters. Despite the fact that we're going to run to some very challenging words here, the most verses are dedicated to Christ's assurance for his church. And so we'll end with that. But let's start with the letter's aim. What is Christ, or who is Christ writing to? And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What a vision. Before we get to that explanation of Christ, let's talk about Thyatira. Thyatira was an interesting city. It was one of the cities that never comes up in ancient writing because as opposed to the other three cities we've talked about, it was fairly insignificant. But it was important because Thyatira functioned as a military defense from attacks from the east. If you wanted to get to attacking Pergamum, you had to go through Thyatira. And unfortunately, that meant that Thyatira had been repeatedly destroyed and rebuilt. So it was in a key strategic military position. It also had very prominent trade guilds, as we've talked about in the past. Trade guilds like shoes and dyed cloth and bronze smiths, as we'll talk about here in a moment. And all of these guilds, just like in the other cities we've talked about, had their own gods. To be involved in the guilds was to be involved in pagan worship and offering food to idols. Now, these guilds weren't connected to the emperor worship like we saw last week in Pergamum and the week before that in Smyrna. But there was a tremendous amount of worship of the god Apollo. Apollo, the god of the sun. We're going to come back to that here in just a moment as Christ defines himself in specific terms related to Apollo. So Thyatira is an interesting city. It was an up-and-coming city. It was a strategic and commercial city. It was a largely unnoticed city. In short, it was a place where it paid to know the right people and to not upset the wrong people. Thyatira had a tremendous amount of stake in keeping the peace, both with neighbors surrounding them and within their own trade guilds inside the walls of the city. And in there, Christ plants this church. We don't know a whole lot about the church in Thyatira. We do read about it in Acts 16 where we learn that Lydia is from the city of Thyatira. You may recall Lydia being a convert who sold purple cloth. We know that she went back. Likely, she may have been involved in planting this church. But other than that, Scripture doesn't give us a tremendous amount about Thyatira and the church there. But Christ does issue a very fascinating introduction to himself to this church in Thyatira. Look at this description of Christ in verse 18. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. What an incredible description that Christ gives to this small and insignificant church. He starts off by saying, I am the Son of God. This is the first time in all the churches that Christ has referred to himself as the Son of God. We take it for granted But to the church in Thyatira, this would have been significant because Apollo was supposed to be the son of Zeus. Zeus was the king of the gods and Apollo was his son. And in direct contradiction to that, Christ says, I am the son of God. 
And then he adds, I have eyes like a flame of fire and my feet are like burnished bronze. What a worshipful description. What an incredible description of Christ and what a familiar one to the church in Thyatira. This is an area that was, that was known for its bronze smithing. And so when Christ refers to himself as having eyes like a flame of fire, they would have envisioned the flame under the bronze kiln being lit up by the baffles. When he says, my feet are like burnished bronze, they knew what it looked like for a military force to march in clad in iron armor. And the awe that would have inspired Now, this isn't the first time both of these things have come up in the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 1, verse 14 and 15. Christ has already introduced himself this way. When we read, The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Revelation is likely quoting from Daniel 10 there. And the emphasis that Christ put on his introduction to this church in Thyatira is he emphasizes his insight and discernment and his imminent judgment. He has eyes like a flame of fire. He sees right through the situation of individual believers' lives and right through the smoke of the church. He sees right to the heart of the matter. And the imminent judgment... His feet are like burnished bronze. He is clad for warfare. Both of these will come up later as we talk about this hard message that this church needed to hear. But we we need to at least understand before we move into that that Christ is telling His church that He is the all-knowing, perfectly just Son of God. These aren't new themes for the book of Revelations, but He describes Himself in a new way to this church so that that image would be in their minds as they hear what he has to say to them in the aim of the letter. Let's look at what the implications were for this in the aim of the letter. He starts off extremely positively with words of encouragement to his church. I know your works. We get back to that familiar refrain. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. What a compliment. What a compliment to this church in this insignificant town in Asia Minor. He says, I know your works. And that's a way of introducing what he knows about his church. And we see a link at the beginning and the end of this verse. I know your works. And then he ends with, and that your latter works exceed the first. It's as if he's putting a parenthesis around these four things and saying, I'm complimenting you for these four things. And what does he compliment them for? This is an incredible list. I know your love. This is a familiar term. Most of us know the word agape. This idea of the self-sacrificing love of God. It's only used in the book of Revelation here and in chapter 2, verse 4 of the church at Ephesus. I think one of the things that Christ is doing here is he's intentionally contrasting Ephesus with Thyatira. Ephesus was the doctrinally sound church. They had their T's crossed and their I's dotted but they had forsaken their first love. Thyatira, on the other hand, is complimented for their love, and we're going to find out that they've gone soft on doctrine. But that's coming up here in a moment. So just think of these churches in opposite to each other, Ephesus and Thyatira. But he goes on, he says, not only are you a loving church, not only are you a sacrificial, caring church, 
but he compliments them for their faith. Your love and your faith. This is a frequently used word in the book of Revelation. It indicates their active trust in God. The primary message of the book of Revelations is endure until Christ returns. And that requires an active faith in who God says he is. And he compliments for them, them for this. He says, you are actively trusting in God. You are persevering in a difficult place by your faith that you've put in Christ. Thirdly, in addition to love and faith, he compliments their service. This is similar to the church in Ephesus. This is literally the word diakonia, where we get the idea of deacon or servant in the church from. This carries the idea of charitable service and ministry to others. Not only was this church loving in concept, not only did they have faith in thought, they put that into practice and they actually loved each other. They served each other. They ministered to each other. And lastly, he says, your patient endurance, or your translation might have your perseverance. Patient endurance is an attempt to, to understand what one word conveys, and so that's why some of your translations convey perseverance. This indicates strength under fire. The idea to be able to be in a complex, difficult situation under fire and keep your wits about you. To calm the nerves and to do what needs to be done in spite of the fear, in spite of the challenges. And he compliments the church on their patient endurance. And then, look at the end of verse 18 or 19. This is awesome. And that your latter works exceed the first. Again, as opposed to the church in Ephesus, they hadn't grown cold. Their latter works exceeded the first. They were growing in every one of these areas. How many churches do you know that are more loving, have more faith, more service, and more endurance than when they started? The trend line tends to go downward on these things, doesn't it? But not in the church at Thyatira. Christ says your latter deeds, your latter works exceed even the works you had at first. What a compliment to this church. What an incredible encouragement to the faithfulness that they were experiencing in this unknown part of Asia Minor. But as you've already heard, as Mario read, just like so many of the other churches in Revelation, Christ doesn't just compliment them. He also has some corrections. He compliments them for their attitudes, he compliments them for their actions. In so many ways, these attributes sum up what it means to be a faithful Christian, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 13 that we read a few weeks ago with Ephesus. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And we get this description. Faith, love, service, and patient endurance. But. But. Again, verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idol. But I have this against you. Your attitudes and your actions are right in so many areas, but I have this one thing against you. Your tolerance. He says you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Jezebel. 
And this is stronger than in Pergamum where we read, I hear there are these people among you, the Nicolaitans, that believe these things. He says, no, in Thyatira, there aren't just these people among you. You actively tolerate this false teaching. You think it's a good thing to tolerate this false teaching and this sexual immorality. So strong is it that he brings up the term Jezebel. In case you're unfamiliar, this term is an Old Testament metaphor from 1 and 2 Kings. If you want to read about it this afternoon, go and read 1 Kings 16 and 21, and then her judgment is in 2 Kings as well. Jezebel was the, antith- or like the, the definition of what it meant to lead God's people astray. Jezebel was a false foreign queen who came and married the king of Israel, the northern tribes, Ahab. And what she did was she systematically eliminated the prophets of God and introduced the prophets and the worship of Baal. She led the nation of Israel astray. And he says, you have allowed this Jezebel to teach in your church. Now likely this is not actually her name. Likely she's not actually named Jezebel. Likely this is a metaphor. But everybody in the church would have known exactly who they were talking about. Imagine that. Imagine having a courier come from the Isle of Patmos and the Apostle John and say, I've got a letter for your church. And we're going to read it publicly in front of us here this morning. You have a Jezebel in your midst. And everybody knows precisely who he's talking about. Would have been a bit awkward, wouldn't it? But what's her offense? He says, you have this Jezebel. What has she done wrong? She's teaching the same things as the Nicolaitans. Did you pick up on that? You have this, tolerate this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. The same two things that they were struggling with at Pergamum. Idolatry, the worship of false gods, and sexual immorality. Literally, porneia. Sound familiar? Anything outside of the intimacy of marriage. Said she is teaching idolatry and she is teaching it is okay to live however you want. And you are tolerating her. You are letting her teach this way. Now it's important to note at this juncture that what she is not being indicted for is prophesying. What she's being indicted for is being a false prophet. And that's consistent with what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.5. And yet, Christ is so patient with her. Did you see that? This absolutely is amazing to me. Look at verse 20, or verse, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Can you believe that? To this woman who's described as Jezebel in the church of Thyatira, Christ says, and I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to change her attitudes and actions. I gave her time to do exactly what I told the believers in Pergamum to do. But she has no interest in repenting of this. Maybe the church has approached her and talked to her about it, and she's rebuffed all of their efforts to correct her. And she was given time, so Christ steps in. He says, I care so much about my bride. I love my church so much. I'm going to step in and address this issue. Look at verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, 
unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Her offense was she was teaching the same things as the Nicolaitans. She was being tolerated by the church and put up with and allowed to teach. And so Christ says, I'm going to step in and judge her myself. He's going to judge her in three ways. With sickness, with tribulation of her associates, and with the death of her children. With sickness first. Now this is somewhat debated, but I think the most straightforward way to read it is a literal sickness. One of the ways that God judges sin at times is with physical illness. Now that doesn't mean we should be running around and every time we get sick or have to go to the hospital assume that there's a sickness or a sin behind it. But it does mean that one of the ways God judges and disciplines his people is through physical illness. So I'm going to make her sick. Secondarily, I'm going to give tribulation to her associates. Those that are practicing the things she's teaching. Those things, those people that are engaged in the same things that she's advocating, I'm going to give tribulation or affliction to. And then lastly, and I will strike her children dead in verse 23. Now likely... We're not talking about her actual children here. Likely, this is a metaphor for those that choose to follow her. This woman had been given such a platform in this church that she had raised up a generation of people that followed her and believed and taught precisely what she believed and taught. And Christ's words is, I will strike her children dead if they don't repent. And this seems kind of harsh to us, doesn't it? This seems really hard, reading these words, doesn't it? See, we have a tendency to think that if we evaluate how critical an error is, then we apply the appropriate punishment or judgment based upon our evaluation of that issue. So some sins are important and some sins aren't really a big deal. Right? Instead, that's not what the Bible does. What the Bible does is it says the sin, it says the error, and it gives us the judgment for that as a way of showing us how serious the threat really is. And so Christ says, let me show you how serious this doctrinal threat to my church is. I will strike her with sickness, I will give tribulation to her associates, and I will even kill those that follow her. That's how serious my love and commitment to my bride, the church, is. If we have a tendency to read that and think, Christ, you are so harsh, what the issue is, is not Christ's judgment. The issue is how seriously we take sin and heresy. Christ says, this is so important. This is so serious to my church that I'm going to step in and address the issue. Let me typically explain what this might be more like because we don't, we don't quite grasp this sometimes. What if you were aware of someone in your family, a spouse, a child, a parent, a cousin, a family member of some sort, and there was someone coming in and attempting to seduce that person, to lead them away from their other relationships and to steal their money, what would your reaction be? How seriously would you take that action? 
That's how serious this is to Christ. His bride is under assault. His bride is being led away. And he says, this is serious. But not only is this to teach this woman a lesson, but this is also to teach the church a lesson. Look at verse 23. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So he says, this is her offense. Because that offense is so grave, this is what I'm going to step in and do to judge her. And I want it to be an object lesson for all the churches. All the churches then and all the churches now. Have any of us ever been an object lesson? Have you ever been an object lesson for someone that's trying to teach a point? I have vivid memories of every fall when I was in high school. I know I don't look at it like now, but I played football in high school, okay? I have vivid memories of two-a-days that started the week of school. And every year was the same routine. You'd wrap up summer training, and the coach would say to the whole team, two-a-days start on this day, be here at this time. And it was generally really early because it started before church, right? And inevitably, there was always one person that thought that time wasn't for them. Typically, it was a freshman, admittedly, okay? Which, as you get to be an upperclassman, was kind of fun to watch. Okay, but typically, it was a freshman, but sometimes it was other grades. But you always knew there was going to be one person that was going to be late for that first day of two-a-days. And the coach would say, let me address this. Let me make an object lesson out of this person. And they would run, and they would do push-ups until they couldn't run and do push-ups anymore. And everyone on the team would know, I don't want to be that guy next time. In fact, it became so apparent because normally they would do push-ups and run until class started and they wouldn't get the chance for a shower. So the object lesson got to continue all day as everyone knew exactly who had skipped practice. He says, I want this to be an object lesson for the other churches too. I want to teach all of the churches two things. That I search minds and hearts. That I am the one with the eyes like flames of fire, and I know what's going on in my churches. I search minds and hearts. God knows what we really believe and what we really do. Regardless of whether the church around you, regardless of whether your family, regardless of whether your friends, regardless of what anybody else knows, Christ knows what you really believe and what you really do. So he says, I want to teach the churches that I search the mind and the heart. Second, I want to teach the churches that I reward everyone for their works. This afternoon, take time to read 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 21, and we get a better description of it there. But God doesn't play favorites here. God is saying, I know what's going on. I know your works, the good and the bad. And I want to teach the churches that I reward everyone for their works. I see what this woman is doing. I'm not oblivious to it. And every church needs to understand that. So though this church was strong in so many ways, the church at Thyatira ultimately failed to recognize that tolerance of this teaching, tolerance of this immorality, compromised their witness, and was extremely important to Christ. We have a tendency to miss that, don't we? To think that our sin, 
isn't really that big of a deal to God. Isn't really that big of a deal in the church. Doesn't really matter to those around us or to Christ. Christ says you're doing all these good things right, but you're tolerating this heresy and you're tolerating this sexual immorality. And I'm going to step in and address it. These are hard words for his church. If we didn't know the rest of the Bible and Christ's love, we might be questioning, what's going on here? If we didn't realize that Christ disciplines those who he loves, we might be struggling here. But thankfully, as like in most churches, this false teaching hadn't totally taken hold in Thyatira. And so Christ moves from this woman Jezebel and what they're tolerating in her to the rest of the congregation. And he gives the church an assurance in verses 24 through 29. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who do, or have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. He steps down to this church and says, I know what's going on, and I'm going to address the issue, but for all of you who are holding fast, let me not lay on you another burden. You've rejected the false teaching, and I have no additional correction for you. Just hold fast to what you already have. Hold fast, this theme comes up a lot in the book of Revelation, to seize or to take a hold of it. And what were they to hold to? Their correct doctrine and their faithful lives so far. That there's this issue in your church, but so many of you are still faithful even with this going on. Hold fast to that. Don't buy in to what's being taught. And then we see the reversal of this standard order. We've come to expect at this point, as he wraps up his letter, he's going to say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And we get this odd reversal that should catch our attention. Instead, he says, to the one who conquers, who keeps my work to the end, or excuse me, my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And with earth, or when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. He flips this on his head, and he talks about participating in Christ's victory to the one who conquers, to the one who follows in Christ's steps, to the one who keeps my works the theme of James 2. I will give two things. First, he said, I will give authority. This is amazing. He's paraphrasing Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, where it talks about Christ receiving authority over the nations and Christ being given the rule or the rod of iron to smash the pots and Christ being given the authority from his Father. And here Christ says, and I will give to the one who conquers with me from that same authority that the Father has given me. I will allow those who follow me to participate in the authority that I've earned as the Son of God. It says, I will give them authority over the nations, authority over the rebellious worldly powers. I will give them authority to rule with a rod of iron and smash these pots. It's the idea of bringing judgment and justice. Do you know that Scripture teaches that one day we will judge angels? 
And all this authority is from my Father. The Son is given the authority from the Father. <laughs> and then verse 28. And I cannot get over this. And I will give him the morning star. And I will give him the morning star. The second reward, reward to those that conquer with Christ, to those that follow in his works as he promises the morning star. In Revelation 22, flip a few chapters to your right in your Bible. Revelation 22, verse 16, we learn what the morning star is. Revelation 22, verse 16 says this, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. This also comes up in Numbers 24, 17. Ironically, a proclamation by Balaam, which we talked about last week, that Christ is the star of Jacob. And so the greatest gift, the hope of endurance that Christ gives to his church in Thyatira, it was, I will give you the gift of myself. What a reward! To this church that would have been tempted to think Christ is being really harsh, Christ promises the best gift he could ever give. He promises eternal life with him. The bridegroom writing to his bride saying there's hard things you need to understand, but ultimately if you persevere, I will give to you of myself. Then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear to respond. He who would hear this hard message, but remember what it means and remember that I'm giving to you first and foremost of myself. Summary, the reward here is faithfulness to Christ means that one day we will share in his messianic authority, victory, and glory. What a promise. What a promise to this church that was tolerating this incredible false teaching within their midst. Now you may have noticed that as opposed to the last few weeks, um, I didn't weave the takeaways into the different sections of the message. And that's because I want us to focus in a little bit on what this passage means to us, and I want us to look at it a little bit differently. We've said we're going to ask, what are we to believe from every passage? How are we to behave? And then how do we endure? And we're looking at those both as individual believers and corporately as a church. But these themes really build on each other this week. So I want to walk through first individually, what does this mean? And then I want to talk about us as a church, because this passage is primarily directed at the church. So first, individual takeaways. What are we to believe individually from this passage? Love is no excuse for shallow theology and weak morals. Love is no excuse for shallow theology and weak morals. A few weeks ago from the church at Ephesus, we talked about how all of the things they were doing didn't count for anything because they weren't loving. The correction is not to fall off the opposite side of the horse. We have a tendency to think that loving means absolute tolerance for whatever someone does. It's not what Scripture teaches. 
Christ does not tolerate this woman's sin in His church. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. And we need to know if we're living it. It's easy at times to say I'm just being loving when I don't really know what the Bible teaches. Love is no excuse for shallow theology and weak morals. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul writing to Timothy says, you need to keep an eye on both your doctrine and your walk. Second, how are we to behave? What is the next step from this? We must be intolerant of the sin in our lives. We must be intolerant of the sin in our lives. Too often, we are quick to see the flaws in others, but slow to recognize them in ourselves. Too often, we tolerate and justify and explain away the sin in our own hearts. But the minute we see that same sin in somebody else's life, we recognize it instantly, don't we? We all have blind spots. We all have areas that we are indifferent and are tolerating sin to grow. Sin has moved from us compromising to the culture to us actively tolerating that mindset and mentality in our lives. In that way, we need to be more intolerant. And then lastly, how do we endure as individual believers? What is the hope that Christ gives his church in Thyatira? Hold fast to Christ and the gospel. Hold fast to Christ and the gospel. There are no perfect people. We endure by falling again and again at the foot of the cross, recognizing that our ultimate victory will only be by our ongoing dependence on Christ and his work in us. But as he erases our awareness to the intolerance of sin that we should have in our own lives, we are again and again struck by how far we fall short. And so the gospel becomes a daily reality in each of our lives where we remember Christ's redemption on our behalf. And we look forward to one day being with him. In an article this week, I ran into, it's called, Why You Can't Love Jesus and Condone Immorality. I would encourage you, it's on the Gospel Coalition's website, it's really good. In there, there's a quote from David Paulison. I don't know his name, I don't know how to pronounce it. He says this, and I think it summarizes it well. God accepts us just as I am, despite who I am, intending to change who I am. Did you pick up on that? The way God accepts us is just as I am, despite who I am, intending to change who I am. Too often we just continue to tolerate who we are because it's too hard to let God change us. How about corporately? What about as a church? What is the message to the church at Thyatira? And this is where it gets sticky, so hang in here with me. 
First, what are we to believe? There is no such thing as private sin. There is no such thing as private sin. What we really believe, what we really do, will have an impact on those around us. And what they do will have an impact on us. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is addressing very much the same issue that we see in Thyatira in the church in Corinth. And he says to them, a little leaven leavens the whole. He says, a little heresy, a little sin in your midst will have a tendency to spread. There's no such thing as private sin. Most of us are convinced that we can sin privately and it has no impact on the people around us. That we can harbor these private sins, these secret sins, and it doesn't affect the church and our families and those around us. What this woman was doing was affecting the church. How are we to behave? We must be intolerant of sin in our church. This sounds so easy when we just say it. Too often, as believers, I think we get together to lament the sin in our world. The sin or the state of our culture. Even to complain about the sin we see in other churches. But we overlook and we justify and we excuse the sin in ourselves and our friends. Don't we? We show intolerance, but it's for those outside the church. And we pretend like there aren't even issues in the church. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to think that all of the issues are outside. Christ writes to this church and he says, there needs to be a healthy level of intolerance for the heresy and the sin that is inside the church too. And that intolerance is not unloving. And then lastly, how do we endure? Hold fast to Christ's bride, the church. Again, it seems so simple, right? There are no perfect people. There are also no perfect churches. They don't exist. We endure by striving together to corporately become the perfect bride that Christ died for. There's a tendency to think that, <laughs> that the churches are places for perfect people who operate perfectly. Churches are places where imperfect people treat their imperfections with the love of Christ. But we have to address the issues. Too often we think the first time I run into an issue within a church, the best solution is to go find one that doesn't have any issues. They don't exist. We'll be looking for eternity. Christ doesn't tell the churches in Thyatira, or the believers in Thyatira to go to run to another city. He says, guys, address the issue here. The solution is not to just go it alone. The solution is care enough to talk to somebody about it. 
So hold fast to Christ's bride, the church. This church in Thyatira, I think, is an important object lesson for all of us. Because it basically addresses the question of what happens if the false teaching in Pergamum goes unaddressed? Is allowed, is tolerated within a church? Our culture would have us believe that to be loving is to tolerate every sin and every attitude in a person. But Christ, the most loving person who ever lived, does not do that. He does not tolerate this heresy and this sin in his church. And as his followers, we should do no less. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that we can stand on that. Lord, that we don't have to question whether you love us. Thank you for the fact that you love us enough to speak challenging words to us. This isn't an easy message. This isn't an easy truth to adopt, to embrace. Father, help us to have a passion for your holiness. Help us to not downgrade our sin as something that's insignificant and doesn't matter to you, but help us to recognize how much it matters. Lord, help us to fall again and again on your grace and the gift of your gospel, remembering that we don't do this in our own strength, but we're conquerors in that we participate in Christ's victory. Father, use your word in our lives this week as we go out. In Christ's name, amen.